0: It's been really depressing. And, uh, and medically, we've seen a lot more heat-related illness in the emergency department, so it uh, has not been a good summer.
1: This is Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly Wayment. You may have seen the headline last week in National Geographic. This isn't your grandmother's heat. What kind of things are you seeing?
0: Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's heat exhaustion. So you get people that have vomiting and just feel really bad. Uh, we see a lot of kidney, acute kidney injury, secondary to like volume depletion, dehydration.
1: Here in the podcast studio is Dr. Steve Moore. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine and director of the wilderness medicine program at UT Health San Antonio. Thank you, Dr. Moore, for being here today in the podcast studio. Thank you. So you practice emergency medicine at the University Hospital ER, and you've been doing this for 23 years.
0: Yes, yeah. I've, I've been here for about eight years.
1: What's it been like with the temperature, the hottest on record this summer? Here we are in late September. It's going to be 100 degrees today here in San Antonio.
0: Uh, we see a lot of kidney, acute kidney injury, secondary to like, volume depletion, dehydration. Um, so we see that. And then the heat stroke, we, it really feels like we've seen a lot more heat stroke. And I think the numbers are up for sure. So uh, seeing a lot more heat stroke this year as well.
1: And we're seeing more drownings. We did an episode on yeah. drownings. Yeah,
0: yeah, especially June, early July, just tons of dr- I've never seen anything like it before this summer. So
1: mm. it's so tragic. Yes, with you see kids in the ER as well with with heat stroke. What advice would you like to give here to our our practitioner listeners
0: regarding kids? Well, well, first, you know, a younger kid, so they're their sweat systems haven't developed. They're not great at communicating when they feel bad. I mean, they feel bad for so many different things. So it's a, uh, so for younger kids, and it, when they get too hot, it's more of a, like, they're passively getting too hot. They're out in the heat. They're not generating the heat themselves. So they're either in a hot car, they're left in a hot environment for a long time, and they can't communicate that they feel bad. So I think it's important to be cognizant of, like, I'm in a really hot environment if I feel bad then my child who can't deal with the heat as well. It probably feels worse. So I think just being aware of your surroundings is, is big. Um, and then with our teenagers, it, you know, all of these these teenagers really want to, especially in competitive environments, really want to prove themselves. So they're really going to push it past their natural limits. Like when most of us say we feel bad, we want to stop. They're gonna they're going to push it even harder. You know, they're trying to make that team or make the first strength squad or whatever. So um, it, it's really important that before they start sports that they're acclimatized to the heat and then they're aware of their own bodies like when they feel bad that they know when to stop so
1: and you sent me a website that I'll put into the chat but it it directly talks about um, getting acclimatized to the heat when you're an athlete
0: Right, yeah, that the, the Corey Stringer Institute. So Corey Stringer was a professional football player, early 2000s, and he, uh, he died from heat stroke. He was at, a, I think it was a second practice of the season, and uh, got too hot and started acting, kind of babbling and not acting himself. And instead of going to the emergency room or the hospital, the, I think the trainer brought him, best of intentions, brought him inside a, a cool room, gave him an IV, and kind of watched him for an hour. He ended up having a seizure and... Mm and dying. So his family started a foundation and they have excellent recommendations as far as acclimatization goes and, 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 and how to deal with the heat.
1: What are some of the top ones?
0: Well, it takes you, I mean, to really be acclimatized to the heat, it probably takes a good two weeks. So, I mean, their recommendations are, if you know you're going to be doing some sort of sports in the, in the summertime, you give yourself about two weeks to get ready, like start training two weeks out before that happens. Specifically, uh, at least for football, they, they recommend, you know, five days of practices no longer than I think three hours is what they say um, before you put any pads on at all, before you do two a days, anything like that. And then at day six, you can consider putting on pads. Um, and then if you're doing two practices a day, make sure those are fairly short practices. So that, that's specific for football. Um, but, it, you know, they give it at least a, a week of acclimatization.
1: When it comes to heat what would be the top few things you would hope that would be said to families that could help avoid them and en- these kids ending up in the ER?
0: Yeah. I mean, so as a practitioner, if you, somebody comes in with a heat illness, you have to keep it on your differential. Sometimes they must come in and they're confused. Um, so you'll have to get a good history to figure out, okay, he's confused because they took too much of something or they've been out in the heat for four hours. So you have to keep on your differential. Um, if somebody – and it's simple. You put your hand on their body. If they feel warm, they're probably warm uh, and get an appropriate temperature. So that's like recognizing um, heat illness. And then for the for the parent end, um, yeah, it's just being aware of your environment, Um that's it. You know, if you go out and do some sort of physical activity, parents need to know that you can get too hot, it can hurt you, um, and be prepared if you're going for a hike or a walk. You know, make sure that, you know, it's in a cooler time of day, in the morning or at night. Um, make sure there's some available shade, you're able to take a break, you're able to, that you're, you take it in the shade, um, that you have sufficient water.
1: You and your family, you go to Big Bend. Correct, yeah. Even in the summertime.
0: Yeah, yeah, actually we do. I mean, it's um, I know it. It's it's we, we've gone a lot, and typically, I don't know if you know Big Ben, So there's the Chisos Mountains. So the altitude, it's a little bit cooler there. We start really early in the morning. Um, we generally will take uh, a liter of water for every two hours of anticipated hiking. So and then and probably then some, and then uh, salty snacks and all, all the stuff. And then we we usually go part of the trails that that are shady. So. Uh, we put a lot of thought into it before. So when people have gotten into trouble, especially in Big Bend, there were a couple of deaths earlier in the summer. Um, they, they were stepped hot. out in yeah, the sun yep.
1: terrible.
0: Yeah, it was horrible. But they were hiking in the in the southern part of the park near the Rio Grande, which is the hottest part of the park. So in the Chisos Mountains, the temperatures may be in the 80s, but there is like in the one teens. So yep. and there's no cover, there's no shade at all. Um, so it, it, a little bit different scenario.
1: Mm. I that must have been particularly hard for you to hear that when that happened, working in wilderness medicine and knowing that things like that can be avoided.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like 99% of this stuff is preventable for sure. So in sports, and, and we see a lot of construction workers, uh, when people are hiking. Um, like if they just knew the weather, if they knew, like if they did just a few things and they – it Never would have happened. So yeah, it, it's maddening. It's,
1: yeah. It's, and Steve, you were tell me you take your, you have three kids, right. and you take each of them on by themselves with you, right, right? On their own to Big Bend. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. There's a
0: rotation. So, uh, <laughs> so usually we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll end up doing like two children uh, a, a year kind of thing. But but yeah, we'll go. Usually we go to the Chisos, the mountains. There's a South Rim hike that we do. It's about 13 miles. And, and do that, and it's, uh, it's good. It's quiet time. There's no phones, and it's just us talking, and they're outdoors, and they love it. And
1: so you love wilderness medicine, and now you're directing this program. It's relatively new here at UT Health, San right. Antonio. Steve, in this new wilderness medicine program, you actually take students up into the mountains.
0: Yeah, so we, we started it back in, I guess, officially 2019. 2020 is when we had our first wilderness medicine course so we designed it. We wanted to – there have been some, some tragedies in the years before, and there's a few things that prompted us to think, hey, we need, a, we need to provide something to our medical students. So they're going to go out and, you know, hike or go on these global health missions or, they're, you know, be caught in some natural disaster and be outside, and we want them to know what to do and to be safe. So that was kind of the main – that was goal number one was just to, to teach safety – in an austere wilderness environment. Um, and then goal number two was to empower them if they were out hiking and they something happened, they would know what to do, whether it was with them or somebody from another party, or they would just be empowered wherever they were to be able to handle things appropriately. And then the third thing is just medical school, it becomes very cliquish and people do their classes and they don't see each other for the same group of people for a really long time. So we wanted an opportunity for for people to be able to connect like in a quiet outdoor space and do teamwork and all that stuff. And I think it worked out really well. So that was sort of the I know so that was the med school course. And that I think was really popular. And uh, I think we, we thought we were onto something and then thought it would be a good idea to actually treat graduate learners who could go and teach courses like this and to help out they could help out with like search and rescue organizations and other organizations and do research in environmental medicine. And so we created the fellowship um, and started that in the midst of COVID in 2020. Mm. And then that's kind of taken off and that's what we do now. So, so we're, we're, you know, we do a lot of education. Uh, we're doing some research right now with uh, ultra marathons and um, heat related stuff and even some frostbite here. And, uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been good.
1: What are you finding so far with the marathon research? Can you share with us or? Y-
0: yeah, so we're, so we're working with, uh, there's a race series called Racing the Planet um, they do stage ultramarathons at like, there's three deserts that they, they go to every year. There's, uh, the Atacama desert in Chile, um, the Gobi desert in Mongolia, uh, and the Namib desert in Namibia. And it's a, they, it's a stage ultra marathon where you do the, the racers will do 25 miles a day with a little backpack and they have their food and, and sleeping bag and that kind of stuff. Um. And they do 25 miles a day for four days, and then they do a 50-miler, and then like a seven-miler at the end. So it's 155 miles. So um, they get pretty sore. And there is a study done looking at riboflavin, vitamin B2, which is an antioxidant. Um, they looked at, it's the Western States, it's a 100-mile race. Um, and they, looked, they gave that to runners, like during the race, halfway through, and then they measured soreness. And they found that it was effective, Be, they're thinking it because of an antioxidant, it works on delayed muscle soreness. And, and so we're, we're doing that with this race. Sorry, long story to get there. But, uh, but um, we're looking at riboflavin and vitamin B2 on these runners. So they'll take it before the long stage of the race, the 50-miler, and then they take a second one after that, and, and then we just measure soreness. So I think we have 60, 61 people enrolled so far. We have a fellow going out. He's actually heading out to Atacama today, to Chile, and we'll work the second race. And then we have another race in Jordan coming up. So we'll the competitors take the riboflavin, and, and we just measure, like, soreness level. So so you can try it. It's super safe. It's a vitamin. It's water-soluble. So you pee out most of it. Um, it's a pretty good act- antioxidant. So
1: And there's delicious foods where we can get riboflavin, too. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> yeah.
0: No, the heat stuff. So it's uh, these these races, they actually have requirements for you have to have salt in tanks. So you either have salt pills or certain electrolyte mixes. And... Um, yeah, it, it's uh, low sodium levels are pretty common with these races. So you get, you lose sodium with your sweat, and then you get a little bit of kidney injury as well. So then you you know also lose sodium that way. So um, they require some sort of sodium repletion during the race. They've had problems with hyponatremia in the past, and yeah, so it's another problem that you see. Yeah.
1: Will we be seeing the results of that study in the next year? Hopefully,
0: yeah. So the, the final enrollment is in November.
1: So y- you and your team are responsible for getting the emergency cooling systems in ambulances here in San Antonio?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's been a team effort, so um, we've been part of the process for sure. So there's a – we actually – so cold water immersion is the ideal treatment for exertional heat stroke, which is usually what we see here in Texas during the summer. Um, we see it mostly in younger people. Um so it's really difficult to do in the emergency department to put somebody in a tub of water. So these these, these big events, a lot of times they'll have cu- tubs that already have ice in them. They're ready to go. But we needed something a little bit more practical. So the, the Army had looked at, we call them temp bags, but it, they're body bags, um, and found that they're really effective for, for treatment of heat stroke. So... We've used those in the emergency department. And then we had a resident that actually did a poster on you know, how would this look like with EMS and how much ice would you need and that kind of stuff. And then um, our EMS uh, leadership here had kind of taken that, and now they're using it on the, on the units in San Antonio and Bear County on the, on the ambulances for, for treatment of heat stroke. So um, time is brain. And so the earlier you can start cooling people down, the, the better they do. So now we're doing it in the field what they we call it temp bags but they're basically a body bag
1: with ice in them
0: yeah yeah they take and it's really whatever they can get so when we did the poster it, we looked at we took a a 10 ga- gallon like igloo cooler and just filled it with ice and then you can actually put about 30 gallons of water into these bags so th- they i think they're just doing a bag of ice and one of the coolers of water and whatever extra water they can get in there and uh and then kind of sloshing it around and getting people cooled and transporting them.
1: Because so. you can't cool someone down too fast or it would be difficult to do that?
0: Well, kind of. So so th- with their transport times, it's it's anecdotally, um, it takes about 10, 15 minutes to get the person, like if they're at 108 or 107, to get them at a, a temperature that's acceptable like 102 or 103. That's sort of our goal because they'll continue to drop after you like, stop all of the cooling. So, um, so yeah. So there, with our like, with in an urban environment, the transport times are sh- short enough that it's not going to make a difference. But really, like once you get to about fifteen minutes, you probably you're probably where you need to be.
1: What temperature in the body do things start to go wrong? Do, is uh, there...
0: Textbook, it's 104. So if you have altered mental status and you're hot and your temperature is 104, then you have heat stroke. Um, you know, you can it varies on who you read, but 104 is kind of the magic number for us. So really, it, what we see is typically like 106, 107, 108, when they're really symptomatic with it. Um, and it, it, then, then your differentials are pretty clear. Like then it's just heat stroke. It's not you know overactive thyroid or or a fever from sepsis or something like that. So,
1: given this extreme um, unrelenting heat. Do you think it's appropriate to say to patients, to the families, you know, a line or two about when you're out exercising, do this, or if your child's in athletics, do this? And if so, what would you say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean really just think about So think about the, if you're going to be outside, think about what that environment's going to look like. So think about what the hot, you know, you may be leaving at 10 o'clock in the morning, but if you're going to be out there at 4, then it's going to be really, really hot. So think about what does the environment look like? If there's opportunities for shade, rest, uh, how much water do I need? For most, like, light activity and heat, you should plan for about at least a liter for every two hours. Um, so there's that. For teenagers, especially for sports, it, it takes you a couple of weeks to acclimatize to where you actually should be. So, and by acclimatization, like, there's a bunch of stuff that happens physiologically, like, you you sweat earlier, you sweat more, your sweat has less salt in it, um, you're, you're able to vasodilate more easily, so you're just able to handle the heat better. Um, and that, that takes a while. You'll get there, but it takes a while. So if you know that you're going to start football two-a-days in early August, then in June you should probably you know be outside for an hour doing some sort of activity and working your way up, um, way out, way before so. It,
1: here in Texas, it seems like there's a lot of pressure on kids and athletes and football to really push themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, and it's, it's hard. So, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about the UIL recommendations for Texas. Um, and it, they, they mentioned something called um, what bulb temperature, which is a combination of humidity and heat. And when you look at the recommendations, like no day anywhere in Texas was appropriate for sports you know this past month um, but we know they're still doing it so yes afternoon um, football
1: practices <laughs> yeah
0: so I, I yeah I don't I don't know where I'm going with this but, but what uh, <laughs> do
1: we yeah what do you do about that just
0: so so yeah I I, I don't know I don't know I mean I, I think um yeah it's uh especially in pads and and it just yeah so so I don't know what you do with that. Yeah.
1: Is it important for parents to and caregivers to know, do they do coaches have an emergency plan? Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, are they getting breaks? How many breaks are they getting? Do you have plenty of water? Do you have shade? You know, how long are you going to practice for? What time of day are you going to practice? Is it going to be, like, 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning? Great. Um, you know, 11 or 4 in the afternoon, not so great. So that kind of stuff. And then what's your plan if some kid gets too hot, and then what does that look like? How do you know when a kid's gotten too hot? So, if you're not acting right, if you're babbling or clumsy or you know walking off somewhere and no one knows what you're doing and you're not being normal, then that's heat stroke. You need to take them to the hospital. So, do they recognize that? And the trainers recognize that. So, I, I think that's important. And and uh, talking to the coaches, I think they're they're looking out for the kids. I think most of them know. Um, but, yeah, I think it would be reassuring to make sure, like, okay, do you, do you know what you're doing? And, yeah.
1: and I know pediatric practitioners see a lot of kids with headaches, and we were talking about this before. My, my son is on the JV basketball team, and he practices in the morning and in the afternoon, and he rides his bike in the afternoon to practice, yeah. and he's been getting headaches. Um, and he says he's drinking a lot of water, but it could be the heat. How do you know if it's the heat?
0: Yeah, and when you you, you, you kind of don't. I mean, you have to match it to the environment and that kind of stuff. People don't realize, like especially once you're acclimated. We talked about, you know, you sweat more, you sweat earlier, and you sweat a lot more. You can these elite athletes are sweating like three liters an hour. Like your average person, your average athletes like a liter and a half an hour. So you do a two hours practice, you have just lost three liters of water, and it's a lo- that's a lot of water to replace. So you may think you're drinking enough, but but um, you may not be. Now, it gets tricky because you can drink, you know, some of these people drink a gallon in an hour, and that's a whole nother problem. Your salt levels get low and get really sick with that too. So um, I think the the best advice is if you're thirsty, drink water. Um, and if you're still thirsty, drink water. But if you're not thirsty, you're probably okay.
1: And with teenagers, it can be hard with diet <laughs> <laughs> and fast food. Yeah, who
0: knows, you know. And then I don't know what ki- our kids uh, communication is always
1: there. Yes. Great. Exactly. They have
0: different communication priorities, so. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs>
1: My son says he drinks a ton of water. Yeah. Uh, what advice Steve do you have for all of us in our lives the practitioner who's on a weekend hiking getaway or how do we protect ourselves but still be able to enjoy the magnificent outdoors?
0: Yeah, especially in the summer. Yeah, I mean just if you know you're going to do something pretty strenuous, um, in July, uh, start getting ready earlier. I mean, give, give it at least a few weeks, like introduce yourself to the heat, do some light exercise in the heat and start to acclimatize. And then when you're actually in it, um, understand what the weather's going to be like, pick real, try to pick the cooler part of the day, bring enough water, um, drink to thirst. You don't want to overdrink. Bring some salty snacks or something like, like that to replace salt. Um, and the biggest thing is listen to your body. So if you start to feel kind of bad, you'll you'll feel a lot worse in just a short period of time. And you, remember, you're already, like, you're halfway into your trip. So especially like it happened in Big Bend, like, when they started feeling bad, they're miles out, and they still have to go back to their car. So... Um, and then make sure they're shady places because there would just be a, might be a point that like okay I can't handle this I need to take a break and there needs to be a place to take a break too and get out of the get out of the sun so but I think the biggest thing listen to your body be smart don't try to push it is
1: you know? there a temperature that's too hot to where you would say don't don't walk outside even or don't go on a hike and that oh that's a
0: tough one I, I I don't know I mean when you look at sports it's like ninety degrees wet bulb you know it's uh, I mean, people that are the 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 more humid. It, so the best way for you to get rid of heat is from evaporation from sweat. So, but when it's greater than I think seventy five percent humidity, that just doesn't work so well. So if it's really humid, it may not be that hot, but it you're not be able to you're not going to be able to get rid of the, the heat like you normally would. So humidity plays a big role in it. Um, and then, yeah, I I don't know. I don't have an exact number for you. You know, probably over a hundred is. Maybe think about the cooler time of the day, you know.
1: And the website is ksi.uconn, U-C-O-N-N E-D-U. It has some great tips here that practitioners could give, to send to their families or give them this website and about how to, how to handle the heat and how to thrive. Yeah, in for the heat. Corey
0: Stringer, yeah. No, I think it's a great re- site. So mm-hmm. uh, they've done a really good job with it. There's a lot of research behind what they're saying there. And, uh, and all the rec- recommendations are reasonable. So it's coming from athletes. So there's an understanding that you're still going to want to perform and still want to push yourself, but these are reasonable ways to approach that. So I think it's good, yeah.
1: You were on a different path, and when you were at Texas A&M, your uh-huh. stepfather had a heart attack, yeah. and that is what inspired you to go into emergency medicine? Can you tell me about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I, I, I planned to actually be an infantry officer. So uh, so he he, he was a, uh, a paratrooper until end of World War II. He was actually part of the occupation forces in Japan. And then it's kind of an interesting side story. He was colorblind but worked as a medic and memorized the colorblind, the, the, the eye chart, and cheated on his test and became a pilot. <laughs> So he he flew a couple of tours of Vietnam, and then when when my mother married him, I started like reading about Vietnam and and uh, different leadership styles just a, as a way to connect with him. And then eventually, thought I wanted to be an infantry officer and and be in the in the military. And so that was my plan was when I was at A and M. And then, you know, as I was getting older and looking at a career in the military, I didn't know what I would do after. And uh, I wanted some sort of service. And uh, and yeah, yeah, he had a heart attack, was in the ICU, and I had a chance to interact with his physicians and nurses, and they were amazing. And uh, it was something I didn't think I could do before, but like, these are my people. This is what I think, I think this is a way to serve. And, uh, and yeah, so um, I was going regular army and then went to the National Guard and did the med school route, and now I'm here.
1: And you went to medical school in Guadalajara. Yeah, and yeah. Ended up being valedictorian there.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, um, yeah. I was, I was valedictorian, and then uh, finished. There's a program th- with uh, New York Medical College, so I actually finished up through them, and, uh, and then did my residency in New York as well. I mean,
1: so. Does do your children and does your wife do they love the wilderness and outdoors <laughs> as much as you do? It,
0: I don't know. I think. Um, I think the kids do. I think my wife appreciates it. So, uh, I mean, not like I do. It's, a, it's when, when I hike, if I hike solo, I go really ultra light. I have like a bivy I sleep in. I don't have a tent. And uh, it's, it's pretty Spartan. So I think I'm the only one that does it that way. But the kids really enjoy it. And, uh, and we live out in the country. And it's sort of a, yeah, I think they appreciate it. So like we were talking about, the, the kids go out to Big Ben at least once every two years. And do the longer hikes, and they seem to really enjoy it. So,
1: is Big Bend your favorite place in the outdoors, or what's your favorite place to go? Yeah,
0: I like. I mean, it's so remote, and then the community that that the community that's there they're they're pretty neat people. So it takes a special kind of person, I think, to live out there. Um, and we do a lot of work. We uh, we help. There's a Big Bend Ultra that we help with, and then we do some rotations out there. So it's uh, I, I like the people, um, but yeah, the park is is beautiful. It's remote. There's a there's a longish hike uh, that kind of goes up to the Chisos and then around, and uh, I've done that and and not seen people for days, so it's uh, it's pretty cool, yeah.
1: Do you recommend wearing the cooling vests?
0: I don't even know what that is. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll skip that. No, I mean le-
0: less is better. So so. The best way to get rid of heat is for you to sweat and for that sweat to evaporate. So whatever allows that to happen. So like loose fitting clothing. If you want to like be completely covered up, I think that's fine. But I think it's if it needs to be like a breathable fabric, and then loose fitting. Um, but anything that's against the skin, not allowing you to sweat, doesn't really. I wouldn't think really helps. So.
1: And it, yeah, people wear less clothing and not much clothing, but then it might be tighter and it's not letting this. The sweat go through, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, some people it's it's this balance. It's interesting to see the ultra marathon, or some people are like just nothing, and then some people have everything covered because of the sun. But and uh, anecdotally, I think the people that have less tend to do a little bit better with the heat. So,
1: Mm. so, so don't be all covered up in light colored clothing. Yeah, I mean that's
0: good. I think uh, just something like loose fitting, breathable. Um, is, is the best. So if something that allows you to sweat and for that sweat to evaporate.
1: Do you think that as the temperature continues to rise, that this will be more and more of an emphasis in modern medicine?
0: Yeah, I do. So, I mean, this, I've, we've never had this much attention. We've been doing this for a few years and this summer, I think people were like, Oh, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was, it was a rough summer and, uh, and then there's the car that you know, all of the car recommendations. It, that's so tragic. So
1: mm-hmm. um, We've seen that this summer, right? There was a child who survived, though, passers-by. Okay. Okay. Um, Dr. Condal in the ER. Oh, Dr. Okay. was telling me. Yeah, that, yeah. And passers-by saw the child in the car. Yeah, and you know. a, Yeah, alerted authorities and broke the window, which is legal in the state of Texas, if you see a, a child in the car or a person in the car.
0: Yeah, it, 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 and mortality, like, once you get too hot, it, it is high. So that's actually a really great save. Um, it doesn't take long at all. Mm-hmm. So the temperatures can get up to, like, 140 in the car it's, and really quickly. So.
1: Well, yeah. Thank you so much for being here today in the podcast studio. It's such an honor to talk to you, Steve. Thank you. Dr. Steve Moore, thank you for being here today on Pediatrics Now.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Pediatrics Now. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. If you're a practitioner, click on the link in this podcast for free credit. Thanks for listening. up next week, when she was eight years old, she was in a terrible car accident. Her family was traveling from California to Texas, and her father was killed in the accident, and her brothers and sisters and mother all hurt. She went with them in the ambulances to the hospital, and that day is what inspired her to do what she does today, help children in the San Antonio and surrounding area. Who have been involved in car accidents. Meet physiatrist Jeannie Harden. That's coming up. I'm Holly Wehment and this is Pediatrics Now.